Welcome to this discussion on how professional practices are likely to evolve over the next uh, couple of years. With, with this webinar, we're going to use this as a template for the discussion, uh, the, the recently republished report by the Law Society of England and Wales on the Future Worlds 2050 project, Images of the Future Facing the Legal Profession 2020 to 2030. But as you'll hear from the presentations, there's a lot to be said about other professions in this too. Uh, the webinar has been hosted by the Professional Practices Alliance, which is an alliance uh, of professional advisory firms that advise other firms. Uh, the webinar is being recorded, uh, but the breakout group discussions will not be recorded. We're going to, uh, when I finish speaking, we're going to have our guest speakers speak, and then we're going to break into breakout groups, and we're going to have a very quick report back on the breakout groups, and then we will uh, go into Q&A. Uh, and if you haven't yet, then please do join uh, the PPA, Professional Practice Alliance's LinkedIn group, and uh, the addresses for that and our blog too will be appearing in the chat shortly. Our two speakers today, I'm so pleased to, to be able to welcome the, the speakers we have. They're the people who are actually behind the, the Future Worlds 2050 project. Uh, we've got Dr. Tara Chittenden, who is the Foresight Manager in the Futures and Insight Directorate of the Law Society. Her research at the Law Society, she's got other interests, but uh, in the, at the Law Society, it focuses on technology and process innovation, futures and the horizon scanning and she is the author of the Law Society's reports on the future of legal services in 2016 and capturing uh, technological innovation in legal services in 2017 and many other uh, scanning reports. And she was the lead on this project now. And we also have Dr. Nkiona Hardy, who joined the Law Society uh, in 2019 in the newly created role of Directors of Futures and Insight. He's responsible for developing the what he describes as a, a, a best-in-class insights and analytics function for the Law Society uh, in order to be able to better advise its 160,000-plus members of what the future might hold. And his main interest is in understanding the future issues um, um, impacting the legal profession. He's got a PhD in sociology and MSc in international business and an honors degree in business economics and he is also the author of a best-selling science fiction novel called Exit Darkness Enter Light. So without any further ado, Dr. Chittenden, over to you. Hi everyone, thanks very much Rob. Um, brilliant opportunity to be here, we're, we're really excited about the discussions that are going to come out of this. Um, just before I, I kick off um, with a taster of sort of the, the main themes and setting some context to our discussion. Kion's just going to introduce the, the sort of the driver behind the reports and the, the sort of strategic senior level support for, for this sort of work at the Law Society. Thanks, Tara, and thanks, Rob, and thanks, everyone, for uh, arranging this uh, opportunity for us to talk to you today. I hope everyone's well and enjoying the, the bright weather, although it's quite chilly where I am. Um, just to give you a bit of context about the Future Worlds project, as Rob mentioned, I kind of joined the Law Society in 2019, a new, newly created position around futures and insight. And one of the key things I was keen to do in, in the role is to set up a, a foresight function, and Tara is obviously the lead uh, research that we've got in that function to really look at the issues affecting the legal profession but also more broadly the professional services sector in the next 10 20 30 years so this project future worlds is quite ambitious the time horizon is the next 30 years the report we published and hopefully that you've had a chance to look at focuses on the next decade 
And in that, we've spoken to uh, over 50 experts from various backgrounds who've all shared their wisdom and their insight as to what the future might hold. And we've collated that in, into a report that we're presenting here for you today. So hopefully you're going to enjoy some of the findings and we're looking forward to a discussion on this. So I'm going to hand back to Tara now to talk a bit more about the findings. And then I'll be speaking towards the end about the two scenarios that we came up with as part of the report. Back to you, Tara. Brilliant. Thanks, Keon. So as Keon said, we wanted to push ahead business planning and the sort of the awareness of the emerging signals that are impacting other industries that will ultimately impact law. So it was really important to us not to look at the trajectory of law in a silo, but really to reach out across different industries, see what key thinkers and experts were seeing coming to impact on their own industries and then how those sort of mesh together to create our future societies and business environments. So the methodology behind the report, we, we did a desk review of reports already out there looking at macro trends, looking at different decades. We did a Delphi panel, so three rounds of questionnaires with experts across different industries. Um, economic modelling, which Keon is going to talk about later. And then the, the key Really, the key themes and insights have come from our depth interviews. So 45 depth interviews with experts across industries, looking at health, looking at smart cities, energy, food, professional services, labor, just trying to look at all the factors that sort of pull together to create our future worlds and our future sort of pictures. So today I'm gonna give a quick taster of the key findings and across all the interviews, the main themes sort of clustered around climate crisis, the geopolitical dynamics, AI and emerging technologies, and data ethics and trust. So those are our four sort of big buckets, obviously overlapping and intersecting with each other. We didn't want to look at law in a silo, but we did recognize that our members are lawyers and we did need to bring that back to a lens for them. But I think it resonates across banking and financial services, across accountancy. So I think a lot of professional firms share some of the concerns and the challenges that our, our lawyer members will have. And just before going into the findings, we, we recognize that courts are often at the forefront of change. We see change and sometimes we ride the ripples, sometimes they end in conflicts. And it's those cases where conflicts end up in legal cases or in courts that we often start to notice some of the worrisome in, impacts that we might not have seen emerging from these signals that appear to be further out and across industries. So we're looking at emerging legal and regulatory frameworks. We're looking at what will be the future skills and the changing client needs for professional services firms. And some of the interesting debate was coming around what, what does a professional look like in the future? What, what does it mean to have expert knowledge? What will society expect of their experts? And what sort of services would they be providing? How do people plan ahead for those sorts of skills? So geopolitical. And I should say the, the research was conducted through the, the first part really of 2020. So we were talking to people when Trump was still in office. We didn't know if he'd be reelected. We didn't know if we'd have a deal for Brexit. We didn't know what was happening with North Korea. So there was a lot of unpredictability and instability in the sort of global relationships. And I think that, that came across in a number of our interviews. Um, there was a recognition that China is growing in dominance and likely to be the economic superpower within the next two to three years. So a real shift towards the E7 nations away from the G7. There was tension between whether interviewees thought we'd be heading back towards globalism or nationalism. Many recognized there was a sort of a, an entrenchment, certainly around tackling COVID and 
policing borders and recognizing how vulnerable they were to supply chains from abroad, either through Brexit or through COVID disruption. So interesting data coming up around the idea of fab labs and fab cities and that connected with the climate findings. So the idea that we're not moving physical products around the world anymore, but perhaps we're moving data and there are fab labs that can make things and fabricate them locally and a real sort of shift towards more regional supply webs and self-sustainability. They also recognise the changing needs of multinational clients and certainly for professional services firms, following those clients in expansion into some of the high growth and global markets, but also recognising the geopolitical risks of operating in these different markets, the different trade that was coming and areas around financing and investment that link very tightly with the, the climate crisis and what we're hearing at COP at the moment, particularly today being the final day. So um, what we also saw on a global scale was this real shift of citizen activism. So the idea that people were claiming back their values and their identity and shaping global politics, trying to have a voice to, to shape the world as they wanted to see it, which their interviewees thought would shape attitudes to business, to trade and the future talent pool that were moving into these sorts of roles. So climate, I feel like I, I really don't need to say a lot at the moment. When we started the interviews, we had three or four climate science experts. And obviously they, they bought the science, they bought the gravity, they, they bought the, the, the wealth of knowledge behind this. But this was also at a time when Trump was not taking this seriously. And then suddenly we had forest fires and we had floods and it just kind of climate landed in our laps. And of course, now we have COP and it feels like these sorts of debates around energy, renewable markets, sustainable global financing, green financing, that they're very much on the table and prominent in people's minds at the moment. There are a number of legal issues coming around this, around climate litigation, um, recognition of climate risk, of biodiversity risk, things of the physical impacts of extreme weather events and mass migration through to the ripples effects. So not only allowing for the sort of reparation of extreme weather events and the destruction they've caused, but the, the ripples, what that means for different jobs in the economy and where people can, can move. And just, just to give a shout out while we're here, um, one of the outputs of our project was a short film looking at the future of climate. And some of our contributors from the interviewees have taken part in this film, and I'm happy to share the link afterwards, but I, I would really urge you to watch it because it's, it's so powerful. It's such a moving sort of capture of not only how critical the situation is in terms of mass migration and food supplies and energy, but also encouraging lawyers, encouraging accountants and professionals to really step up and have, have an active and changing role in these sorts of debates. So certainly for, from the lawyer side, being lawyers as agents of change, not just commercial agents. So AI emerging technologies, there, there was the clear recognition of the rise of machines and the growth of intelligence and capabilities of machines. There was division over the extent to which these were seen as an opportunity or an, as a threat. There was recognition that automation and machines would be taking on more of the tasks and more of the roles in a larger number of jobs and not just the sort of manufacturing jobs, but the, the knowledge processing and reasoning jobs as well. But it, there was also a recognition that this freed up humans to do other things. And I think we have to be really careful when we're thinking about lawyers to not try to have that 
forward trajectory of the lawyer as we know it now? What will, what will happen to them in 10 years time if the rest of the world changes? We think these roles are gonna be changing. The ask of the lawyer is going to be different. The types of skills, the, the need for specialist expertise across more niche and emerging paths. So ex exciting opportunities from AI, as well as recognizing the potential bias behind training such systems and the, the risk of cyber attacks. I think COVID has really sort of shone a light on the, our capability to do things differently in a way that we hadn't addressed before because we were, we were so used to, this is the traditional way we do this. COVID has really accelerated our ability to conceptualize how we interact and how we do business differently, but it has opened up some more cyber risks from remote working. So a, a whole spectrum of issues coming from AI and emerging technologies that I hope we'll also be discussing today. And just before we move on, also mention of Internet of Things, more technologies, more devices speaking to each other and being used for good in things like farming and mapping weather and also for um, parametric insurance. So you're getting real time data around insurance claims, but then also the rise of wearables and smart devices and talking to someone from the NeuroRights network, the idea of devices that can read your brainwaves. And so many debates arising around privacy and the right to change and implant and enhance your physicality as a human if you want to, but then the privacy if you don't and where things are regulated as medical devices and where they're more sort of leisure industry and really exploring that line. And we've seen some exciting laws passed in Chile around this as well at the moment. So one to watch for. So connected with AI and technology, um, one of our key themes was data ethics and trust. So a lot of concern about data, but again, a lot of opportunity for what we could do with data to provide services. So there are lots of questions around who would have access to data, um, how, how would it be manipulated, who could we trust, but a rise in citizen-centric data as well that empowers individuals with control and with visibility over their own data and how they use their data and who they allow to see it. So that's, that's just a, a whistle-stop tour, really. I know we're, for this seminar, we're particularly interested in the AI side and um, future roles in professional services term. And I know there were a couple of graphs in the report that have drawn attention. And so I'm going to hand back to Keon to talk us through some of our projections on these graphs. Excellent. Thanks, uh, Tara. As Tara mentioned, there was two things we did as part of this uh, research. Obviously, we had a number of experts with different views about what the, the future landscape would look like. So we tried to consolidate these into two different perspectives about the next 30 years in terms of jobs within the legal services sector. And I guess some of these insights will apply more broadly to accountancy and management consultancy as well and the wider professional services sector. So the conservative view that we're presenting here was basically based on looking at data for the last 10, 15 years in terms of GVA and employment levels within the legal services sector and extrapolating that forward into the next 30 years. And here you can see employment in the legal services sector is 550,000 in 2019. And we're predicting that could be a reduction of about 70 or 80,000 jobs by 2050 because employment has been quite stagnant the last five or 10 years in, in the, the kind of sector. There's been jobs lost within support areas around the legal profession and, and that's due to greater automation in some areas. Now 
obviously technology will impact the workforce in different ways, but the high end level of the legal profession tends to generally be immune to a radical reduction in the number of uh, FTE uh, jobs. And, you know, we've seen year on year slight increases in the number of practicing certificate holders in the UK for the last 10 or so years. Although, again, that's beginning to slow as well. We also know that high street firms and legal admin roles are more at risk of disappearing, but there's new entrants to the market and new delivery models, which means that the legal sector is beginning to include more people from non-legal backgrounds. But I mean, another trend that we took forward is smaller firms are falling out the market. So for example, in the last 10 years, there's been a 10% reduction in the number of private practice firms across the UK. So again, we could see a similar trend going forward. And this is just because, you know, it's very difficult to sustain a business as a sole practitioner. Uh, and that's, um, we're seeing more mergers and, and consolidation of firms as well. So there's an opportunity there for small firms to fall out of the market and kind of larger corporations are still able to fund and scale technology. So this was a very much a conservative view of the future. And it was just basically based on using data from the last 10, 15 years and, and taking that forward. The other scenario we had, and this was really driven by some of the experts we had on the panel who came from a, a data analytics and AI background, sees a much more disruptive view of the next 30 years. So here we see the use of AI and, uh, and other technologies radically reducing the number of lawyers and other staff currently employed in the sector. So here the prediction is by 2030, we could almost see a halving of the workforce from the 550,000 in 2019 to just over 260,000 in 2030. Um, again, what we'll see here is that last waves of routine legal advice could either be conducted in-house using tech solutions or outsourced to tech providers. And one of the things that we're seeing across the professional services landscape more generally is a number of legacy platforms are becoming obsolete and firms are trying to increasingly integrate technology following recent mergers and supporting particular projects. There's also an increased pressure and competition from other countries such as the US and again, as we mentioned, China, which is causing um, firms to have to enhance the use of technology, law tech, fintech, and in other areas as well. And again, this is pressure for a need to show greater efficiency from clients uh, to deal with increasing workloads and complexity of work and the changing demographic mix of lawyers themselves. So we're seeing, you know, the legal profession is getting younger. The mean age of um, solicitors in England and Wales is 46 now for men and 41 for women. So the profession is getting pro progressively younger. Uh, and with younger, more tech-savvy staff becoming more prevalent, then you can see more opportunities for technology to be used. Uh, and this prediction is also that only really the high value complex or new areas of law will kind of need human input. So we're not saying that lawyers will completely disappear even in this more radical scenario. What we're saying is that their work will become more in high area and more kind of complex litigation issues and other uh, kind of new emerging areas around data ethics and the kind of more uh, broader areas such as conveyancing wills and probate are more prone to becoming automated and carried out using AI and various forms of technology. So this was a disruptive view of the profession and we'll be interested to hear what others think about this perspective. I'm just going to hand back now to Tara just to sum up with some of the key themes that brings all of this together. So back to you Tara. Thanks, Keon. Um, just to pose a few questions around the factors that Keon mentioned, taking into account changes with climate, with geopolitical trade, um, and then really thinking, what does this mean for professional services firms? 
in serving clients who are also changing. So what are the questions that we want to ask about our own business models and how we meet client needs? How to embed knowledge of technology, innovation and future skills in educating someone to be a professional, whether it's law or finance or other professional industries? What does it mean to be an expert to share that knowledge? And really just thinking around the growth of collaborative business models. So more partnerships, more holistic solutions for clients, drawing together different skills and how that might work. And a new sort of a new social contract in terms of future employees, employees coming, not thinking they're going to have a career for life, having the portfolio desire to move across different experiences. Also bringing their own issues of greater value for them, social issues than campaigns by businesses, climate change, the ethical business and challenging the idea that growth is an economic measure, challenging the idea that growth is something that keeps happening and uses more and more resources when in reality we have a, a finite limit on our planet. So how do we change that economy to, to measure things in other ways? So um, yeah, looking forward to getting stuck into the discussion. Um, thank you, Tara. Thank you, Keon. That was fascinating. That really was. Uh, what we're going to do now is break out into four breakout groups. So, Daniele, if you could weave your magic, we will move on to that part of the, the webinar for 15 minutes, and then we'll reconvene in plenary. Welcome back. Let's go through the breakout group alphabetically by Christian name. So, Claire, if you give us the bullet points that came out of your discussion. Sure. Yeah, we had a lively conversation. We mostly talked about innovation and, you know, tech innovation. And we all generally agreed that where we've got either in our personal lives or in our business lives, young people and, and at Buzzacott, we have 18 and 19 year olds who we've started recruiting over the last few years. They come up with the most incredible innovation. And the idea is that we don't just allow them to bring that into the business. We actively encourage it, but we've got to find platforms to encourage that. We're lucky enough to have Tara in our group and we were talking a little bit about what I would refer to as old-fashioned networking and whether that might change. Um, I think all of us on the group, I was saying that we've been around the block a few times. So the only way that we know to win new clients is to go out and meet people face-to-face -face and go to bank conferences and all that sort of stuff. And will that change? And I think, Tara, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you were saying that you don't think that will change, but I think we generally agree that there'll be some sort of blended approach and there might be alternatives for the younger generation to implement different ways of winning business. Generally, we were saying that collaboration is key. Clients want a holistic solution. So if that means they can't get it all from us, then we need to be able to collaborate with others and be joined up in that approach. And then we had a final point about allowing brainstorming and, you know, allowing an open office format to allow people to collaborate and get together and come up with ideas. Great. Great. Thank you, Claire. Uh, just before we go on to Corinne, if anybody has any questions for the speakers, please do put them into the chat. Corinne, uh, over to you. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> uh, we talked a lot about tech as well. Um, we talked about actually the positive impact that um, we've we've seen with COVID. We've really sort of accelerated our our adoption of tech, and and particularly we talked about the court system and how um, things wouldn't have improved that quickly. And and some of the kind of around civil litigation, some of the products and platforms that are available to be able to make those systems and processes more effective um, are, are really working well. I mean, there are some, still some questions there around sort of access to justice and around fairness and, and possibly the criminal system versus the, the, the civil system will be, will be harder to see those advantages. But, but we sort of thought that, that technology has, has improved things generally. 
Um, actually, we, we talked first about sort of the legal services world, and then we also talked a little about the accountancy world, which um, I felt was probably a little bit ahead of uh, the legal services world, but I'm, refer, you know, pro- pro- properly put in my place by the accountants who tell me, no, that's just a misunderstanding on my part. Because uh, <laughs> things like making tax digital and so on are, are proving that actually it is difficult to adopt tech. I think across the professions, uh, the impression that we have was that kind of the bigger operators, say the big firms with sort of large war chests are going to be the people who are driving innovation and and the investment in technology. Therefore, they're going to have first mover advantage. But hopefully over time, that technology will become more widespread, meaning it will be more accessible to the the smaller operators and those people that don't have war chests um, to be able to make that investment. I think that the last point I'd like to pull out from our discussion was a really interesting one around ESG and and the the way in which that uh, particularly new entrants to people's firms are driving um, change within those firms. Um, and they are coming, these, these new entrants are coming in and saying, well, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm, you know, this is what I, I need in, in, a, in a firm that I work for. Um, and I think that was really interesting and about moving it beyond just lip service and, and actually seeing if you can affect real change within those businesses. I mean, I, I have to confess, I, I wondered aloud whether that was coming from the, the new entrants and whether they, the more established people, the leaders in the business shared that outlook they will be the people that set the tone and, and drive the culture of the firm. Um, obviously, the jury is out on that one, but I was particularly delighted that one was raised because it was a, a great sort of lead into our, our next seminar in December on ESG. <laughs> thanks, Rob. Great. Thanks, Karine. Um, David. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, really interesting stuff and, and fascinating discussion. So four things uh, from our group. First of all, everybody pretty much agreed, look, when you look at these four areas, they're all going to have an impact but that um, they will all achieve a different degree of focus in different organizations at different times. And that is a living thing. It's not just one thing uh, that's that's like this and another thing like that. It's just changing all the time for all those reasons that Corinne's just elaborated on in terms of the input into the business varies so much over time and what the businesses are faced with. We then moved on to talk a bit about the actual advice that firms give. So how far has... Um, have these four elements percolated through into the actual advice that that law firms, accountancy firms, etc., are giving? <clears throat> and I think the feeling there was was there is an extent to which it's, it's happening because of things like non-financial reporting requirements coming in and ESG being much more to the fore, for example. Um, but that the the step change hadn't yet happened in, in terms of um, advice being coloured by those, those four big um, influences. Uh, we then talked, our third aspect was sort of emerging tech and particularly around um, job losses or whether it was job shifting from, you know, if you, if you look back over time, firms, PSFs have been very good at adapting to a technology change, but whether the technology change now happening, you know, contrasting, um, scriveners through to printing press versus um, the change that AI brings. You know, is that a fundamental change that'll really decimate um, the, the, the sort of th- thinking processes within um, in the professions or not? Didn't quite know, but definitely that the shift is coming. And that lastly, the, our fourth one was was really pretty pretty quick at the end. We were running out of time here, but that question about specialization and collaboration. We're seeing fewer high street firms and fewer sole practitioners on the high street, but we are seeing more people being able to practice 
individualistically because they are able to work with disaggregated providers in the legal world, more chambers type models like Keystone, et cetera. And whether the impact of things like um, a carbon footprint from travel might mean it gets harder to run everything everywhere businesses, PSFs, so those global businesses might start to feel the heat in terms of the agency costs of running that style of business versus a distributed best friends network. So a really, really interesting bit there about how business models might change and the use of technology uh, as an aid to integration between best friends firms as opposed to having to do it as a, as a one-stop shop. Excellent. Thank you, David. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, Zulon. Hi, thanks. Um, thanks, Rob. Um, we had a really interesting discussion. We, we actually ran out of time. We had so much to talk about. Um, but the key kind of things we focused on were initially um, data and how firms are um, collecting and using their data and how they're, um, what purpose they're collecting that for and what purpose they're actually um, using it for. Um, we had uh, and. <coughs> We had Tanya from um, Pennington's on on the on the line, who's was interestingly um, uh, in, in uh, horizon scanning in, in that organisation and was able to talk about um, how they're using data within their organisation. Um, uh, but one of the key points that came out of that is the data that comes out of it is only as good as what the data that goes in, um, and being able to um, kind of understand why you're collecting that data, explaining to your people. Um, why it's important that they put in put in the data in, 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 you know, into the system in the first place. So whatever comes out is actually useful for the firm to use, whether that's, and we talked about, you know, um, firms using it, data to give their clients um, insights into market practice, for example, in, in certain things. So in M&A transactions, in, in my own experience of partnership agreements, um, uh, and real estate transactions, for example. So it's only as good as the data that goes in. So being careful about that. But we also talked about the challenges that PSFs face because we're traditionally quite quite conservative about data because of the regulatory implications um, and hurdles in, in using data um, for certain things. Um, so we tend to be kind of behind slightly safe than the likes of Facebook's definitely behind the, the likes of Facebook and other tech companies um, because of our hesitancy over, you know, um, uh, the regulatory situation. Um, and uh, I think, was it Struan who made the um, observation that actually some of that has been um, helped, some of that hesitancy has actually been helped by uh, the COVID situation because people now are working remotely and having to use a lot more technology and data, etc. Uh, and, and that's kind of removing some of that kind of um, uh, conservativeness around using tech and data uh, uh, altogether. Uh, and the kind of final point we we didn't quite get into too much detail about, but um, I think Anne Anne was making a really great observation about the this is the greatest war for talent um, that the professional services uh market has ever seen which is really interesting um and we kind of touched on how automation is uh we talk about automation replacing lawyers and other you know, accountants and doctors etc but actually is it keeping up with the pace of um head headcount crunch that we're actually seeing and do we actually need to accelerate that in order to kind of um uh 
take account of the fact that there aren't enough people in the market to fill all the vacancies that are out there. So do we as professional services firms need to be doing more on that rather than being afraid of it? Because we, we all we all seem to kind of talk about automation as replacing us, but actually if you if you look at the uh, the talent market at the moment, we do need to step up in terms of automation to kind of replace all those uh, people that we're not able to recruit or retain. Um, so those were the things that came out of our discussion. Great, thanks, Ulan. Interesting, you should mention uh, Facebook. Uh, so, so if you haven't seen the video on YouTube uh, that uh, of Zuckerberg's presentation of the metaverse and the way the world that Facebook would like to create, it, it's worth watching just just to think through and think what you think about that and how that might impact your clients and your firm. Um, I, I have a particular view on on uh, the. the headcount reduction. And I think that is what uh, many eyes go to immediately when they look through the Law Society report. And that is, uh, my undergraduate was in landscape architecture 30 years ago now, just at the time that drawing boards were being replaced by CAD, computer-aided design. And I remember our professor saying, well, you know, don't know if you're going to have a job in a few years' time. Uh, but um, if you look at the work of an architect today, the headcount has indeed gone down in architectural practices dramatically. But the, the talented architects are in huge demand and the buildings that are being designed are far more complex than one could ever do with drawing boards. So in my view, the future is bright. But with, uh, I see we have a question that has come up. Uh, what impact do speakers think potential future change will have on diversity and inclusion? Let, let's kick off with that. And if, if anybody else, we've, we've got eight minutes odd for, for seven minutes for Q&A. If anybody could put their questions into uh into the chat and i'll kick that over to kion and tara i guess my view on that one of the themes that we're working on at the law society is increasing diversity and inclusion across the legal services <clears throat> sector i guess my view on on that is that what we're seeing is there's increasing diversity in the legal profession for example and in a number of other industrial sectors but the challenge is always that that's not translating into more senior positions so for example there's not enough women um, people from um disabled backgrounds or from uh, different ethnic groups in senior positions at partner level, for example, in the legal profession. So that's one thing we're working on. Obviously, the other angle is judiciary as well, not enough judges from diverse backgrounds. And this is not just about um, things like uh, ethnicity or gender. It's also about social mobility and class. So I think the key thing on this is that one thing we are seeing, and, and this is something that came back from research we did with the 50 largest law firms, is that clients are demanding more diversity because um, they have more diverse workforce themselves. They have more challenging problems and some of the problems that they're dealing with are complex, which might need to be across geographical boundaries, et cetera. So I think it's going to have an impact and it's going to be more and more important. I guess one dimension of diversity that's going to become increasingly important is cognitive diversity. Uh, and there's been a huge amount of literature and evidence now that's shown that if you have more diverse teams and organizations, you actually perform better. Uh, there was loads of in, uh, research done, for example, in the creative industries of the kind of fast growing creative uh, companies. And they one of the characteristics they had was very diverse teams. And because they're dealing with you know, content that's across geographical boundaries, they needed those sort of teams to be able to meet the needs of different audiences. And you've seen a big push in the creative industries, for example, about increasing diversity uh, in, in the number of directors on film and screen as well. So I think it's going to have a huge impact 
um, and I think it should be a positive thing as well. And I think the other thing that was mentioned was data and the use of data. The more effective we get at using data and tracking this, the more visible issues will be. And then hopefully that will lead to change. And, and we're working with a number of law firms at the moment uh, to encourage them to kind of adopt more inclusive practices. And the law society itself, to be honest, is not an exemplar in this area. Uh, and we've invested um, uh, this year in more resource around improving our inclusion and diversity practice internally. And obviously, we all remember last year the huge social movements around you know, the need for equality across uh, our society. So I think it's going to be an important thing for the future and increasingly so and i think it's important both for ethical and economic reasons that we all encourage diversity within our firms and in our clients as well that we work with great thank you kian are there any other questions that anybody would like to raise from jeremy corman do you see ai significantly replacing lawyers in the more mechanized aspects of law practice eg no disrespect but conveyancing entirely devoid of human involvement if so, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I've got an opinion on this, and Tara's probably heard me say this numerous times. I went through two very painful lease extensions last year on two properties. And, you know, I don't know if anyone knows the background, but if you have a flat, for example, you need to extend the lease every so often, especially if it falls under 80 years. And um, you have to pay your own legal fees and you have to pay the legal fees of your freeholder if you're extending the lease. And I had to do that. And I, I found my solicitor for a price comparison tool that I use and I got a very good rate and a brilliant solicitor with loads of glowing reviews but the freeholder solicitor cost twice what mine did and was very slow and, and not as effective as my own solicitor so I'm very much in support of different areas of law specifically conveyancing being open to technology such as blockchain automation you know it's ridiculous that we're waiting seven or eight months for something like land registry to update the transfer of a property's ownership so i think it's a good thing um having said that obviously there's going to be issues that you need to iron out uh, around that and make sure it's sort of effective and, and properly tested and, and errors don't occur but on the whole when systems are put in place effectively and tested um rigorously you seem to, uh, you know, they do work and, and things do get better and they improve. Uh, I don't think there'll be a complete replacement of lawyers by AI. Although having said that, I think the way we interact with knowledge will change in the future. You know, I see the way my six-year-old interacts with our smart TV, for example. So I think in 10, 15 years, you know, our expectations of advice we get, even from lawyers, will be different. And there might be virtual, you know, holographic forms that we use and engage in terms of getting legal advice. So I think there'll be change. I think in some areas it's much needed. In other areas, I can see a need for having that human element because there'll be lots of complex subjective issues that we'll need to grapple with. So there'll still be a space for lawyers in those areas. Great, thanks. Somebody has got their hand up. I can't see what your Christian name is, but it's, uh, uh, it's me. Sorry, I don't, yeah. my Christian name's Raz. Um, the Christian's probably the wrong word, <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> the, the um, um, it, it was it was actually interesting listening to Keon because uh, I, I just thought it might be a good anecdote. My daughter uh, recently bought bought a, a, a flat, and and she she used this firm. Um, the other side was a bucket shop, and she said she would never now put an offer in when the other lawyer is, is, has instructed a bucket shop because it just holds up everything. They don't answer. It takes about three or four weeks for, a, for actually a solicitor to look at the problem, which often gets sorted out in one conversation. So it's a great example of how tech, in, in, from your experience, can work, as you say, if it's properly conducted and actually delivers value. 
rather than these people that just want to drive down the costs and don't have the the tech necessarily or or the whatever it is to make it work properly so that's exactly a good example i think i also wonder whether tech is also more liable to fraud because we saw it in the news this week about a house being sold under somebody's nose without even me even realizing it and i wonder whether the, the firm involved was was one of those tech companies who didn't really meet meet the seller everything was done online and is that more liable to you know fraudulent tra transactions and how do we deal with that indeed so many questions that we could add but we have run out of time uh, what I'd like to do is just thank everybody for attending, but also to trail our, our, our next session, which is on the 1st of December. So if you have an interest in ESG, uh, please diarize that 9.30 on the 1st of December. And otherwise, thank you very much to our speakers and to all for attending. This, this was a wonderful session.